Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Always a pleasure to talk with fierce journalists who are speaking truth to power and doing the good work. Joining me today is Tina Vasquez, analyst, amazing journalist with Rewire.News. Tina has joined me before previously to talk about the family detention and immigration issues generally. And today we are talking about actually two pieces recently that Tina has authored and just in general, this whole conversation has been happening. But specifically, Tina wrote a really amazing piece, The Image America Shouldn't Need. Last week, the world, the state, country, people were shocked to see the images, the image of um, Oscar and his daughter Valeria, who in their crossing had perished. And and I, I, I hate pictures like that, right? And, you know, it was triggering to see them. And a lot of people are like, well, don't look away. We have to show these pictures. But others on social media started pushing back and showing, you know, pictures of Oscar and Valeria in their full vital living selves. There's actually a really cool artistic rendering of them in, in Tina's piece. You guys should definitely check it out. But Tina wrote that we shouldn't need these images. If you're, if you're hearing the accounts, if you're learning all the stuff that we know, you shouldn't need that very drastic image to, 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 to speak to your sense of morality. And, you know, just to quote, my perspective as an immigration reporter is that you haven't been moved by now by the many reports of abuses, injustices, in-custody deaths, and bodies that have turned up in the borderlands, then you cannot be moved. Tina, thank you so much for the work that you've been doing, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Can you just talk to me a little bit about, you know, because, you know, you are a journalist, and you have been so intimately involved with this topic for quite some time now. Can you just talk to me a little bit about like just just the coverage um, more recently of what's been happening at the border and specifically like your feeling, you know, seeing, you know, the major outlets running with this image? Yeah, I mean, so the, the piece that you're referencing, I tackled as a journalist and also as a person whose father is a Mexican immigrant who initially came to the United States without authorization. Mm-hmm. And so seeing photos like that, uh, it doesn't feel good to me. I don't like to see them. I avoid them. I didn't want to see that photo. Um, I wasn't shocked that some of the outlets chose to run the photo. I mean, it's kind of what happens. They're willing to show really egregious, horrible uh, violence, very graphic images when it comes to brown and black bodies, and they tell us to look as if we don't already know. Um, but I think I think the argument that we need to look is is really disingenuous, you know, because we're living in a political moment where we are overwhelmed by the constant barrage of really horrendous language, really horrendous imagery when it comes to people who are migrating to the United States. You know, it's become really routine to see people crammed in cages, to see children sleeping on the floor, to hear an attorney argue that children who are migrating from other countries don't even deserve to have toothpaste. Like, 
we are overwhelmed by this information and the idea that we need this particular image of a father and his daughter who died in migration in order to better understand what's happening at the border. I, I don't buy that at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you know, what do you say to folks who are just like, well, we need to see these images. Like we, we need to show what's happening um, to, 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 to let people be aware of what's happening. Like, what is your response, you know, and, you, and and I appreciate you, you frame this, your multiple levels of experience with this, right? As someone who's been intimately involved in terms of your professional space, but also as someone, you know, the daughter of someone who came here um, as an undocumented person, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that conversation with people to get them to understand that we don't need to show um, these types of, these, we don't need to further the dehumanization of folks just to make the point. I mean, I'm honestly really frightened by those assertions, and I think it says a lot about those people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't need to see those images, and I don't believe that they do either. For some reason, I think that they want to see those images. Um, I don't, I don't have a good response, but I feel like we do have to talk about race. Um, mm-hmm. In my experience, and maybe this is just anecdotal, but um, on social media, it was a lot of white folks, academics, journalists, and just people on the internet who are the ones that were asserting not to look away that we need to see this. Um, and I think that's because they're not dehumanized in the same way. Mm-hmm. If, if people from their community were experiencing large-scale violence, like if there's a school shooting, we're not going to see a dead white child on the cover of the New York Times, which is not going to happen. So I think that's an easy arguments make and I feel like it's a very privileged one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. I also think that this just, you know, thinking about the broader context with these types of images or videos, um, you know, think about the conversation around trauma porn. Um, you know, mm-hmm. people like to feel like they care and are bleeding hearts. You know, this is so devastating as if the only way we can appeal to folks is through some sense of moral outrage. But as you're saying, you know, if if you've heard all the details, all the information that you've heard by now, it's not seeing this picture isn't going to move people. And and the fact that we're using people as an ob- object, right, to move them versus really being more concerned about what is happening, you know, at the border in terms of people who are, are, are either being detained or people who are trying to cross, like, we're not having the level of discourse that we ought to be on this, I feel like. And it's not just because of the current administration. I mean, definitely that plays a part in it. But it just seems like Americans culturally have just never really uh, 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 understood how to talk about immigration overall in a way that's actually like really thinking about the issue and really moving forward. There's such a pitting people against each other that folks like almost not almost they see you know people who are coming here as some other that's not like us and shouldn't be concerned about like how do we start shifting the conversation around all of this and the thing that I'm always really concerned about and I say this a lot is that what is happening in the immigration system for a lot of folks who are new to these conversations is that they're tying what's happening to Trump Mm -hmm. um there's this idea that if we get Trump out of office, we elect a Democrat, 
then these abuses will magically go away. Mm-hmm. And these abuses are systemic. They're part of who these agencies are. I mean, especially now that we're talking about Border Patrol so much and not ICE. Right. Um, you know, Border Patrol's been around since the 1920s. It's been their job to dictate who is legal, who is illegal. Um, violence and dehumanization is kind of inherent in how that agency operates. So, so these things are systemic, and they're not going to be addressed by getting Trump out of office because so many of the policies that Trump is wielding right now, like a weapon, happen under Democratic administrations. And so I think that's kind of an important shift that I would like to make in how we mm-hmm. cover these things. And I, and I try to engage people on this because a lot of times when I, I'm on social media talking about my work or posting my work, I'll get a lot of responses about Trump and how we need to get Trump out. And, you know, and that's not how I approach my work. I don't care who's in office. I'm going to be writing about these systemic abuses. And I hope that that's kind of the more nuanced conversation that we can have is not just what is happening in this political moment because of this person in office, but how did we get here and what are the systems in place that make the immigration system so inherently violent and dehumanized? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I appreciate you uh, referencing, you know, the conversation around Border Patrol because we have not really talked. When you think about the national conversation, it's been abolish ICE, abolish ICE, which, you know, ICE is an abomination. But um, we have not really talked about Border Patrol. And as you correctly stated, Border Patrol has been around almost a century now. Um, mm-hmm. And it does have a very ugly history in terms of um, how the border is enforced, regulated, guarded, policed, whatever the terminology would be. Uh, When we're talking about, you know, having a real conversation about the systemic issues in immigration, what are some of the major points you think we we should be shifting on? I mean, obviously, one is that it's not just simply Trump bad, get him out. But there are these deeply embedded systemic issues in the system. But how do we like, what are some of the major ways we could start shifting like or major points we start shifting people on? Um, in that conversation? That's, that's a really good question. So I, the Border Patrol's Union has a podcast that I've actually sort of been revisiting. I covered it a year or two ago, and now I've been listening to what they've been talking about. And in the most recent episode, it started with an attack on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her mm-hmm. assertion that these are concentration camps. Um, but the co-host sort of started by, by saying illegals or illegal immigrants and Mm. he defended his use of that phrase by saying you know this is how we have to figure it out like this is how we have to approach it they're illegal immigrants and they're illegal and like that's one of those sticking points for me that just um it's i feel like a gut reaction because that language has been really normalized in the Mm. media like if you look at headlines from just a few years ago and they're still mainstream outlets that do this, but that call undocumented people illegal. Um, there was a campaign to stop that language called Drop the I-Word, but it's still pretty rampant. And right. so that's the framework, right? Like there are people who are illegal. There are people who are legal. When there are people who are legal, they are not deserving of rights or due process. And then you see how the system gets built. If a person's not even supposed to be here, if they are, quote, illegal, then 
Why do they deserve basic human rights? Why do they deserve a bed? Why do they deserve a space? Why should we give them food that isn't rotting? We have no obligations to these people. Um, and so I know language is like a very small part of the violence that migrants experience. But mm-hmm. you, you start to see, going back to the 1920s, how that rhetoric has always been present and it's always been used to dehumanize certain people and to treat them like they don't have any rights. So I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, but I feel like that, that's a major sticking point for me, like to look back not that long ago about how we started talking about this, the troublesome ways that we're still talking about this, and the kind of the rhetoric that these mm-hmm. agencies have been pushing for years that are parroted by Trump, and how it's unfolding in these god-awful ways where we're now becoming used to stories emerging every week about a child dying in a border patrol processing center or a person dying in an ICE detention center, um, that's becoming normal. Right. No, I think you do answer it very well because even though it may not seem like the hugest things, um, there's so many organizations out there doing, you know, really great work around immigration and, and particularly what's happening right now at the border and just work around undocumented folks, period. But I think what you're saying though is, is really right. Like if we can shift you know, narrative shift the way people are conceptualizing issues. And one of the things I was thinking about, you know, thinking about the decriminalization of migration, which was recently raised um, by Julian Castro in the, you know, in his policy platform and really became a a conversation in last week's debate. Um, Because, you know, it just, it just, even though there's a different, you know, element to the dehumanization of folks who are coming across the border, people who are coming here undocumented. At the same time, that criminalization, that that's another, you know, systemic issue with the way in which we treat people who are in our criminal system. And even though people will act like, you know, will you know, uh, immigration detention is completely a separate. I mean, in many ways, it is very parallel and mimics or, 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 or emulates the abuses we see within, you know, uh, our system of mass incarceration in general. Um, and so it's it's not surprising that there is an acceptance of the mistreatment of people in that way because, you know, there are these other people who are punished for X, Y, Z issues ranging across, across the map. And not saying that, you know, these two groups of people are the same. It's just looking at the way criminalization is managed in the United States and how it is acceptable to treat people as less than human because they've been labeled criminal in some way. Um, so that that was just something that, that was interesting to me about that whole conversation last week about decriminalizing migration. You uh, just not quite taking a complete left turn still similar topic you had another piece um about something that's happening i think today possibly if i got my dates correct um uh, a young person renee lopez uh, is a gender non-conforming asylum seeker who you know is trying to get released from detention um and i believe has a hearing today uh, but you wrote about you know um, f- this fight for justice and and Renee uh, reporting a rape and immigration um, while being detained. Can you talk to me a little bit about Renee's story and this piece? Yeah, Renee's story has so many levels and layers. Um, she is kind of like a, a second generation asylum seeker, so mm. her parents were indigenous people from Guatemala who sort of went back and forth between Guatemala and Mexico 
during the Guatemalan genocide, uh, where U.S. backed forces helped uh, basically kill thousands of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And so that was the experience of her parents who then fled to Mexico, and that's where Renee grew up. And so Renee is um, a gender nonconforming indigenous person who experienced a lot of sexual violence a lot of abuse, a lot of harassment in Mexico. And so she, too, fled back and forth between Mexico and Guatemala. Um, and it was after a sexual assault by a boss that she decided to seek asylum in the United States in 2016. Um, she tried two times to enter. Um, neither time the Border Patrol asked her if she was afraid of returning to Mexico, asked her if she wanted to claim asylum. So she finally was able to enter the United States and the third time, and I was living in Sacramento, and it was the first time she said that she felt safe um, as a gender nonconforming person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she uh, readily admits that she messed up. She got a DUI. Um, she was going to classes and, and paying fines and doing community servicing, all the things that we require people with DUIs. But then, um, as the Trump administration started to go after people with these very low-level offenses. She was apprehended by ICE, who showed up at her brother's home, and she's been at the Yuba County Jail ever since. And the timeline is kind of murky um, because she has a lot of trauma around it, and it's really difficult for her to talk about. But it seems that she was she's been there since March, and it seems that sometime in the weeks after she first was detained at the Yuba County Jail in California that she was raped by another detainee. Mm. And she uh, waited about 20 days before she told a medical provider at the Yuba County Jail that she was raped. And it's in her medical records that she revealed this information. Um, And so when her attorney found out about this, she sort of jumped into action and called the detention officer at the facility and wanted to make sure that this was being investigated. Um, but in the weeks and months that have sort of followed since Renee said that she was raped, um, it's been hard for her to figure out what's happening. Initially, they said that they weren't going to investigate um, because they asserted that it was consensual sex, that she had consensual sex with her alleged rapist. Um, and then they said that they couldn't investigate because her alleged rapist had been deported. Um, and so now, like, they're being stonewalled. Renee has no idea what's going on, and the investigation is her own right. The attorney is experiencing a lot of difficulties accessing information. And so today, it's like the continuation of the last hearing, which was very uncomfortable. The trial attorney for ICE asked her really inappropriate questions about her gender and her use of makeup and, um, you know, whether she wears really clothes or flowery mm. clothes. And so she was really terrified going into today's hearing. Um, she was asking for court support. Mm-hmm. And depending on how these hearings play out, it could start the process of her getting out of the Utah County Jail and being able to proceed with, with access and asylum. But it's kind of unknown at this point how these hearings will go. Oh, wow. Just, I mean, there are so many stories like this, you know, um, which is really, really unfortunate. But, like, how can people show up or do better besides, oh, we have to share this picture. Like what can people do to help folks like Renee um, who are, you know, languishing in these conditions um, in in detention? I think that's a really 
that's a good question and it's an important question because a lot of times we make assumptions about what people need. Um, I like to ask people what it is mm-hmm. that they need. So the first conversation I had with Renee, I, I wanted to know how people could support her. And I, I asked her, you know, what does justice look like for you? And she gave me a very straightforward answer, which was that she didn't know. You know, mm-hmm. like after mm-hmm. a lifetime of sexual violence and now it's happening in, in custody, she didn't know what justice looked like. But the way her primary thing that she decided that she wanted support with is that she didn't want to feel alone in her hearing, that she wanted to see people there mm-hmm. who were supporting her. And so that was like one act that I could include in the article. Like, this is what Renee says that she needs. Um, so I would just defer to the communities and me, you know, or the people who've been doing this work for a very long time, which are often the same communities. Um, people really differentiate between advocates and organizers and then impacted people. But in the work that I do, I often find that the organizers and the advocates are undocumented people. They are the children of migrants. They do come from these communities. And so deferring to them about what support looks like, about what help looks like, about what they need, I think that's the best approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate you and all of your work, Tina. Thank you so much for joining me um, this afternoon to talk about, you know, what's really an important and impactful piece of, you know, body of work that you've worked on and also helping us really think about how we're engaging, you know, with these issues and not just simply being social media voyeurs. in in one crisis after next. So thank you. Thank you. Just stay tuned. I have more coming next. Peace. I'm back, you guys, and I have another dope guest with me this afternoon. I am talking with Audia Jones, who is running for district attorney of Harris County, Texas. And if you're not sure where Harris County is, it's basically where Houston is, right? I mean, I know Houston has some overlap with some other other counties, but Harris County, Uh Houston, get it stuck in your head. And I'm really, really excited to talk with Audia um, because we already had a really dope off the record phone call about some weeks back about just her thoughts on, you know, everything from um, decriminalizing marijuana to just the powers and the work that a prosecutor that has a progressive focus and lens can actually do. And as we've discussed before, there has been this whole conversation the past few years about progressive prosecutors, or as some will say, prosecutors with progressive politics, who are really trying to change the game, the way in which that office um, is held. And there are so many prosecutors across the country that are elected and oftentimes they're running unopposed or they're running with the support of their local police department and you know police packs etc that the people's voice and the people's concerns and issues are not actually heard so Audie is here to talk to us more about being a, a candidate running as a progressive prosecutor I know when we talked it was before the Tiffany Caban win in Queens that's exciting <laughs> Um, so how are you today? And just, just talk to me a little bit about you and why you're running, uh, for prosecutor. Absolutely. Um, first let me start by saying thank you so much, Anoa. Um, definitely excited to be on your show. Very excited about what your platform is and what you stand for. So I just want to start there. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself really quick and then why I'm running. So initially it started out in my life as a, a basketball player. That was my, uh, that was my, my dream, my drive. Um, ended up playing Division One basketball um, at University of Rhode Island. Um, got injured and then was like, okay, it's time to figure out what I'm really going to do. 
um, got accepted into law school, mm-hmm. went to Texas Southern University, um, where I did really well in law school, um, ended up working at a civil firm, clerked at the United States District Court from the uh, District of Columbia, uh, as well as um, left there and, and went on to work on Capitol Hill, where I got my first experience with um, real like leg- legislation dealing with mm-hmm. criminal justice reform. Um, I would say even there, I really never understood how unjust um, our current uh, criminal justice system was. Of course, I had read books. But the new Jim Crow really enlightened me a lot. Um, you know, Michelle Alexander's book. Um, and I really got to be, you know, close up what the criminal justice system was about when I started working at the Harris County District Attorney's Office. Um, so when I started there... Uh, as a a misdemeanor prosecutor, I handled everything from traffic tickets all all the way up to murder cases. Um, It just was really the same types of people that were coming through court every single day. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter whether I was in juvenile court, uh, misdemeanor court, felony court. It was uh, a lot of people of color, um, a lot of individuals who are poor, um, were drug addicted, um, and uh, or were suffering from some type of mental health issue. So um, having said that, I realized how much power prosecutors, and when I say prosecutors, this assistant district attorneys are, uh, how much power they have. Um, I really got to see that you can use it for good or for evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started using mine for good. Um, but again, eventually, what I saw was even when we transitioned to the next administration, the things, things still remain the same. So we had somebody that was like, yeah, I'm a progressive, I'm going to make these huge changes. I was super excited, and they came in and absolutely did the opposite of everything they said they were going to do, um, which is the current district attorney. Um, so now I, that's why I'm running. I'm like, I can't, you know, we can't wait for the next Superman or Superwoman to come in with these promises, these false promises. And I'm like, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll step up and, and I'll run against them because I, I, I will be keeping my promises um, for my children, for, for the community, for their children, for our future. So that's mm-hmm. why I decided to run. Yeah, definitely appreciate that. Um, So I know when we had first talked because um, you were saying that you had been in, still had been working as an ADA, but has stepped down before you had decided to run. Um, But you were, you were, you were reflecting on how there were things that the current district attorney could have done or could do, um, but that she just wasn't like actually making use of the, the, the power and authority granted to her for the betterment of the community, you know, on particular issues. Can you talk to me about some of those things that you feel like the, the Harris County DA's office could be moving further on um, that, that you haven't seen really happening consistently so far? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, the first thing that stands out is the possession of marijuana, right? Mm-hmm. Because we had that going on that just broke the other day um, where Texas signed into the law that hemp is now legal. Um, hemp under uh, with a certain quantity of THC concentration. Um, from the beginning, you know, one of the things I was excited about was the fact that, you know, she said she was going to focus on uh, decriminalizing marijuana. Um, but when, in fact, she did get into office, it wasn't decriminalized. It was, in fact, something called diversion. Um, what a lot of people think is on the front end, it looks like people aren't getting arrested, aren't being convicted. But what's happening on the back end is that people were getting charged $150 to take this course. They were given, I believe it was three months to take the course. Um, and disproportionately black and Hispanic people could not afford that $150. And to some people, it sounds trivial, but again, that's what the community reflects, and that's what the statistics showed. So what was happening is when they couldn't afford to take those classes, 
um, they were being arrested. Arrest warrants were being issued for them. They were being picked up at random times. Um, so that's huge. You know, that's something that could have been done uh, years ago. Right. You know, we see across the country marijuana is being decriminalized, and we could absolutely do that here. That's something to be done this morning. That's something that could have been done last night where we could decriminalize literally the possession of marijuana. I think we're no longer going to accept those charges, and that just hasn't been done. Mm, mm. It also sounds like whatever administrative oversight fees that they're trying to recruit from the program would no longer be an issue and could be reinvested elsewhere um, within the work that the, the, the office could do as well. Absolutely. absolutely. And then when we talk about when you, uh, the fact that you talk about the, um, the monetary value being reinvested somewhere else, I always tell people that Harris County Jail is literally filled with 77% of the population in Harris County Jail is nonviolent offenders. We pay approximately $137 million a year to run the Harris County Jail. And literally it's filled with people who have not committed violent offenses. So it's like, it, you know, think about where those resources could be spent towards job training, towards education training, towards uh, drug rehabilitation, um, and to treat homelessness, um, to get people back on their feet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you say to people who, um, you know, are, are just thinking about, well, is that your job as a district attorney to be concerned about those other programs and, 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 and funding job training and, you know, education you know, opportunities or, you know, diversion or, I mean, not diversion, but, 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 but when people say, well, isn't that like somebody else's job? Why, why do you feel like that's what you should be doing as, as you know, a DA, like, can you just talk to me some more about like your philosophy in terms of the office and what it actually should be doing and, and how it should be interacting with the, with the community? Okay, you know, great question. I think, you know, well, my answer, my straight and straight answer is at the end of the day, um, as a district attorney's office, our responsibility, number one, is to keep the community safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way the the criminal justice system has been operating is not keeping the community safe. When you're incarcerating individuals um, because they are, committing low-level offenses or they have these drug uh, dependencies or they're suffering from mental health issues, cycling them back and forth in and out of jail literally is continually destabilizing them as individuals, destabilizing their families, and eventually they will move forward into some type of more serious offense. Um, But what we want to do is really target the root issue. Um, and that's when we get into the education, job training. Mm-hmm. That's the way we get at the root issue. What we've done, what we've seen over the last couple of decades uh, since the big war on drugs is that um, that's not working. You know, just sticking people in jail is not working. And you're right. Essentially, that is not, you know, those social ills should not be dealt with, uh, with by our criminal justice system. And that's what we have right now. So mm-hmm. how do we get away from that? How do we get away from mass incarceration? of low-level offenses? How do we get away from uh, destabilizing these individuals and making our communities safer? Well, the way we do it is by uh, providing resources, a holistic approach to say, hey, let's let's get these people on their feet. Let's get them uh, becoming uh, contributing members of society. And and that's, that's my answer to that. And at the end of the day, it's community over politics. Mm. So these people are human beings before being a politician or saying, hey, let's, let's throw my hands up and say it has nothing to do with me. 
Right, right, right. No, I really appreciate that. So just thinking about, you know, your race so far um, and, and how's it going. So what does it look like, you know, with organizing and building in the community around the importance of, um, you know, this position and you as a candidate, as the candidate to kind of usher along to a new era of the way, you know, the office is run? Um, I think, and I think, if, if you don't mind, I, I think I understood your question mm-hmm. um, um, correctly before I start answering. Do you want to say it again? I just wanna yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just saying, so how is it going for you in the community, you know, with, you know, your organizing and just building and mm-hmm. outreach? Mm-hmm. Like, how is it going with just really trying yeah. to connect with people and impressing upon them, you know, the importance of not just checking, you know, and voting for the incumbent, but really, you know, mm-hmm. listening to the issues and, and, and how are you impressing upon them that you're the candidate to move things forward? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good question. I, it, it's actually going great. You know, to be honest, uh, so many people, especially people who uh, typically we didn't see getting out to the polls have been getting out. Uh, mm-hmm. People are more awake to the issues that are going on, the younger people. Again, the communities of color, the two people that are typically have been disenfranchised or looked over. Um, we have our white counterparts who um, are poor or working class that are really like, okay, this, 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 uh, this is a politician or these incumbents or these people who they've seen, you know, previously really aren't doing anything for our community. Mm-hmm. So people are more awake and aware of what's going on, and that's what we've seen, and that's the feedback we've done. Now, what we've continued to do is actually go out and be very uh, transparent, um, open the lines of communication to areas where typically nobody ever goes, especially not elected officials and definitely not candidates, um, to inform people, like, what's the importance of this role? I think when they see us, uh, with Ava DuVernay, it has been huge. Um, uh, played a huge part in, in waking people up to say, oh, wow, this is what the district attorney is. Wow, this is how much power prosecutors actually have um, for so long. I think people follow what they've seen on, on TV, the fictional stuff, right, where they believe that the judge has all the power or, you know, the legislators have all the power. But at the end of the day, people skip over that uh, one of the single, like, single most powerful pieces in the criminal justice system literally is the district attorney. Um, and I think people are, are waking up to that. And, and like I said, the momentum can huge, but we can always use more help, more volunteers. So anybody, if you're in the Houston area, surrounding areas, you're interested in helping, go to our website, www.audiojones.com. Awesome. I mean, if you guys want to get involved for a good candidate doing good work and really getting out there and trying to make it happen, definitely check out Audia. So, what are what are some of the other things that you're hearing from the community? I mean, obviously, decriminalization mm-hmm. of marijuana is a huge issue, but what are some of the other issues that are really, you know, coming up as important um, in the district? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the next thing I would talk about is, is really the ensuring that everybody's held accountable under the law, mm-hmm. right? And I think, and, I, and you said, mm, I, I'm assuming you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and we talk specifically to that, like the powerful actors. We see too often we have individuals who are regular, you know, civilians. When I say civilians, everyday people like you and me, our kids, our family members, um, and not saying you're not special, but when you, when these other people are coming with a title or a badge or, you know, they have something, you know, to their name or they have, you know, they are just, it's it, it seeming, not it seeming like what we've seen, what we've continued to see is that, you know, they are not held liable like everybody else. Um, and that's something we are absolutely going to stop. Um, 
we are going to stop doing this thing. We are going to ensure, when we say this community needs to be safe, it needs to be safe from everybody. And when we say we need to protect everybody, that means we need to protect everybody. Um, no person is more important, no life is more important or less important than the other. And that's how we are, we are going to approach it, um, by creating um, essentially these, um, you know, I think, for instance, we said there are going to be three strikes to um, an officer. We have an officer that, you know, we have some great officers, but we also have individuals um, who, who do essentially uh, misuse or abuse their power. And after three complaints from from our, our citizens or from the community, we will have an independent, um, we, will, we are going to be creating an independent board that will be reviewing those complaints. And I don't mean a board from their, their agency that they, they work for, but one from the district attorney's office that will be reviewing those complaints. Until then, we will no longer accept charges from, from that officer. So that's just, just to give you an idea of like one specific thing, being proactive rather than reactive. Mm-hmm. No, that's definitely something that definitely is a change from what we have seen. Well, what we've seen historically, not just in the last several years. Um, you know, there there have been a lot of like I talked about in the beginning. You know, a trend in you know uh, you know DAs, prosecuting attorneys who have progressive politics and a progressive view on how to run the office in the last several will last like three years. Really, you know, moving forward, you have Kim Fox in Chicago, you have Larry Krasner in Philly, you have Rachel Rollins in uh, Suffolk County, which is around Boston, and you have um, Wesley Bell in St. Louis County um, in in Missouri, which does not include St. Louis. Funny enough, St. Louis is not in St. Louis County, but does include Mm -hmm. Ferguson. Um, You know, just we would love to have Audia Jones be a part of that trend, right, going into this next cycle. So looking forward and, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you win the election, you're in office, mm-hmm. what is, you know, your priority in the first, you know, three to six months of office? Oh, yeah. I'm glad you had that. We, we actually have a plan that's in place where we will be following, um, we will be following strides in the Larry Krasner memo within the first 100 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if I didn't mention it at first, I am uh, one of the first candidates that were endorsed by a nationally recognized pack, the Real Justice Pack, um, that is, has been co-founded by Sean King. Um, but what we're looking at is really making those changes right away. So decriminalizing possession of marijuana, um, literally decriminalizing it, cash bond, um, creating policies surrounding cash bail, um, mm-hmm. and saying, you know, we need to turn this back into the exception and rather than the norm, where we have some people that have, uh, that are you know, that don't have money, that can't get out of jail, but they're not a threat or to the community, and they're not a flight risk. Um, another thing we're looking at is, is declining certain charges, right? So we're looking at declining charges like criminal trespass when individuals are doing it solely to have a place to sleep um, or just lay their head. So um, and getting those individuals brought to a homeless shelter or um, a facility or an organization that can actually help them. So not just leaving them out or dropping them off in the street, but let's get them to the resources that they need to get, get stabilized. Um, so those are a few things. And then just, you know, making sure that we have uh, implementing certain training policies. You know, the culture, the internal culture is just as important as the policies that go on outside. Um, because where the, where, where the head goes or the coach, which is essentially the district attorney is, that's where the players will follow. Um, so establishing that good leadership, uh, having literally sitting down and meeting with every single person that works in the district attorney's office um, from day one within the first two weeks um, and making sure that the 
the training and the programs of Japan for them to understand what they're doing and their sense of responsibility and the power that they have. Mm, mm, mm. Definitely. Well, I mean, that all sounds great. I mean, I wish I was in Harris County. I totally would vote for you. Um, Thank you. But just any final thoughts and stuff about your election specifically or about the larger conversation we're having around what does it mean, you know, to be prosecuting people within this criminal legal system as it exists with all of the the issues that we know, the disparities um, in treatment mm-hmm. and policing, like what are just some of your thoughts, you know, as we close out about, you know, whatever basically that you, you didn't get a chance to yeah. say that you still think is like really pertinent that people understand? Uh, I think the most important thing for people to understand is that our criminal justice system wasn't um, always like this. Um, over the last 50 years, crime has actually decreased. And over the last 50 years, our prison population has steadily increased. That's something is backwards with that. When we look at the numbers, and, and I'm a numbers fact type person, so when we speak, when I speak, when our campaign is speaking, we're speaking from a place of statistics and numbers that support this. Um, we, what we hold 5% of the population in the United States. We hold 25% of the prison population. We have more people in prison than we populate any other country in the world. Um, and it's something where people are recognizing it. Um, people like me, when you named all those names of, of progressive prosecutors across the country, like true progressives, um, they are seeing this is the way that we actually make a dent in it. This stuff didn't happen overnight, but it is going to take someone who has political courage. It's going to take somebody who's not emboldening um, to this archaic system, these archaic parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to take somebody that's going to come in and say, we need to end mass incarceration. This is how we do it. Stop taking these charges. Or we need to hold... Uh, we need to hold our political actors, uh, you know, our powerful actors accountable. Um, and when we do that, guess what? We aren't going to have other powerful actors come behind them and think that if you can take a life. Um, so there are some major moves that need to be done, and it's going to take somebody with courage. And I'm that person from Harris County. Um, and if you are not here in Harris County, if you're listening, if you're not here and you are uh, aren't able to volunteer, please, 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 it takes money for us to get our message out. Um, if you can donate whatever you can donate, please uh, donate that. Uh, campaigns do take money, and we have uh, incumbents that are sitting on large pots of money, and we can't go to a, a gunfight with a with a stick. So essentially, uh, that's what we're asking for. If you can follow us on Instagram, that's free. Just share, like, comment. Um, let people know. Spread the word on Instagram mm-hmm. and Facebook. You can find us at Audia. That's A U C I A. Four spelled out F O R. D-A-D-A, um, on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. And then again, head to our website and volunteer if you're in the area. And please give money if you're outside of the area. And, and you're like, I know, and you would love to, to vote for someone like, like me and, and what we stand for. Um, but if you can't, definitely donate absolutely and you all check the description because all of audia's links are right there as well sis thank you so much for joining me today really keep up the great work and appreciate you for all that you do um yeah so this has been another edition of layer for noah i love having dope conversations with good people doing good work and i'm out peace